0: Welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Professor Sigmund Lolland from the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences. In the first part, we first explored three different justifications of physical education, morality, medicine and meaning, and then started exploring this meaning perspective, connecting it with ecological perspectives as well. After that, Professor Lowland took us to a journey into two of his articles looking at ecological awareness and sustainability in the sport context. And in the second part, we'll be discussing his most recent work looking at human movement, ecology, and urban walking. So welcome back to the podcast, Sigmund. And let's get into your most recent work and your most recent argument.
1: Uh Uh, This article you talked about in the the introduction, the uh, Human Movement Ecology article, is inspired by uh, body ecology, an emerging field, obviously, it seems like, with strong interest in the phenomenology of movement, uh, how movement, uh, the experiential qualities of movement, more linked to the meaning perspective we discussed in the justification of P uh, but developing moving from the analysis of these experiential qualities or extended extending the interest in the experiential qualities to this interconnectedness with the environment. So the ecological dimension of the phenomenology of movement you may say. I became increasingly interested in ideas of the ecologization of, of, of movement, how movement can be a, a direct, embodied, intuitive step into ecological consciousness. And the implication of this idea in our justification of physical activity in society not only physical education in schools, but the immense grow- growth in the sports sciences of epidemiology and the studies of all the blessings of uh, regular, uh, regular and appropriate amounts of physical activity in our daily lives. And uh, the more I read about this, the more I realized that there is this a, a dimension missing here. And this would be the dimension exploring the meaning of physical activity. In human life
0: yes and so when I read your article and and when you focus on this everyday walking it clicked for me very much because especially also before but especially during this time working a lot from home I've walked a lot just maybe twice a day I would just go out and walk for 15-20 minutes just around in the area and I haven't really conceptualized much for myself what's going on. So this <laughs> phenomenological idea that the practical just precedes the theoretical. And it's been something that implicitly somehow is very important for me, but I've never tried to put much of words around why this practice is something that, that is important for me. And so I thought this article was just a good way of trying to put some words into something that It's important for me, probably for other people as well, to uh, think about it in a more philosophical and explicit way. So I wonder if you are one of those, you mentioned in your article the walking philosophers like Nietzsche, for example. So are you one of those philosophers who also get their ideas when you are walking?
1: I, I think I do, and I think all of us do, actually. It's not unique for you, for you yourself or for me. That is how um, moderate intensity rhythmic walking stimulates, you know, the blood flow of, of, of the body. And actually when you walk, when you think and walk, research uh, shows that about 20% of the energy spending is spent in the brain. So the activity of your thinking, you, re, brain research demonstrates that this moderate intensity walking, where you do not have to concentrate upon your technique, or where the surface is not such that you have to be aware all the time. And, you know, coming into this rhythmical walking that open up path, pathways in the brain, uh, with creative associations, problem solving, and we all experience that don't we that that walking moving if you're in, if you're fit i mean jogging you know low intensity jogging opens up your mind to a certain extent opens up so creativity and problem solving at a higher level than when you sit down like we do now mm-hmm. we should have recorded this walking you
0: absolutely and human movement ecology is the concept the framing that you use to explore this phenomenon of walking. Maybe it's just for the listeners who are more interested in this concept and the theory, Uh, just a few words about uh, that.
1: Yes. Uh, One premise is that you have to understand movement phenomenologically. How does it feel like to move? What What are the experiential qualities of moving? Like walking, for instance, a phenomenological analysis of walking would depart from the experiential qualities of the moon. This rhythmic, the rhythmic uh, nature of walking, uh, but also the varieties where you have to adjust your balance regularly, you have to adapt to the environment, to the surface, while at the same time being very repetitive. That is kind of a classic experimental quality of walking. The other quality of walking is we do it in an upright position. We move ourselves from the ground as far as we can, depending on how tall we are. And walking gives you the perfect overview of the environment. You can connect to short distance, long distance objects. And you move at a pace and with a motor control that enables this open this open mind, not only to thinking and problem solving and creativity, but also to connecting with your environment. You had the time to perceive, to experience the environment. So these are some experiential qualities and possibilities in in walking that makes walking interesting and makes walking uh, gives walking a potential for this ecologization.
0: Mm-hmm. And something that you argue is that the idea of habit, that habit is something that is important and habit is something that is meaningful. And not everybody would agree on that. Some would say that habits are just our automatic ways of going about things.
1: Yes, philosophers, philosophers disagree on this. And some of the classical philosophers uh, warn against habit. They say habit makes life mechanistic and less valuable, uh, less reflective. Other would say that habits uh, provides meaning in life. The reflective habits, those habits you have decided to establish, to open up for new dimensions of meaning, are valuable. For instance, you're not happy with uh, with uh, your sedentary life. You decide that you have to change lifestyle. You decide every day, I need 30 minutes of walking, moderate intensity walking. And uh, in the beginning, it may be, you know, a struggle to go out there. Uh, you may have to, to, to struggle with your motivation. It's kind of an instrumentally motivated activity. Gradually you explore meaning in this activity. And this habit becomes a space for you to uh, develop your thinking, your understanding, your sense of yourself and your embodied uh, existence in the world. And also interconnection to your environment that you see in everyday different lights, one rainy day, one beautiful day, sunny day, a cold winter's day. So in this habit, there is con, with habits, It's not, habits are not about doing the same thing all the time. There is a repetitive, stable dimension in a habit. And then if it's a good habit, habits can be bad habits too. These are the habits chosen due to a reflective exercise, a habit chosen because you think it's good for you. In a good habit, this also explores new dimensions of meaning, constantly actually. So it's this, uh, this is an argument from philosopher Carlyle who's written a very interesting book called On Habit. It's this uh, tension and this dialectics between the repetitive and the standard and the, the things that repeats itself all the time and innovation, uh, variety, new experiences. This would be a good habit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I remember in my PhD work, I was interviewing runners. Um, one of them said, just said that he'd also continue running very actively after, after his career in high-level sport. And he said that the easiest is just to run twice a day. You just always go running before lunch and before dinner. Much more difficult is to run three times a week because on Monday uh, you might have something else to do and you can maybe go tomorrow and ah, uh, then something comes up with your kid and you have to, you know, take him somewhere and then it's suddenly Wednesday and then you agree to go somewhere. And so he said twice a day is much easier than three times a week.
1: <laughs> yeah. For these elite runners, that definitely may be the case for some, for some of the rest of us. This sounds quite st- strenuous, but Habits is, are also a way of exploring the adaptability of being human. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we have, we, we, we have populated the earth. We are in all kinds of ecological systems. We can master the cold, the warm, uh, all kinds of conditions. So when you develop habits, you also test your adaptability. Going back to the walking example, you you create your existence somehow with a habit. It's not a mechanistic, deterministic, repressive exercise, a good habit. As I said, it, it opens up a dimension of life and you explore a dimension of life. And in this sense, habits are, are interesting, a philosophical exercise actually. Uh, you can shape your life with good and reflectively chosen habits. Uh, and in my article, I, I, I've i read a lot about, for instance, outdoor education and in more or less extreme uh, activities, whether it's skydiving or, or underwater diving, or even un- there is an article on underwater yoga. Or uh, mm-hmm. the ability to hold your breath for a long time, how you can connect with deeper layers of your embodiment through these extreme exercises, which I think is interesting and definitely worthwhile testing out for those who have the motivation to do it. But I, I wanted to explore whether what does it mean in everyday life for people, especially connected to this uh, physical activity campaigns we have. Is it all about you know? Uh, establishing boring habits that we really wish we didn't have to do this but we just have to do this to improve health or do you have a similar potential actually in everyday life as you is there is this kind of a it's kind of a democratization of quite elitist stories of how these extreme uh, practitioners connect to their unique embodiment in extreme conditions well there might be similar potential in everyday regular activities as walking mm-hmm. walking to work as a habit and this was the my idea to test out
0: yeah i think with this article i'm quite interested in how how does this sense of interconnectedness and perhaps openness develop? Is there something that we can do to cultivate this sense of openness in our lives when we go walking? And I think you might also observe that this sense of interconnectedness doesn't seem to be an automatic response. You see a lot of people walking very stressed (laughs) on the streets in the morning on the way to work or somewhere else and probably in a hurry. So How do we develop this kind of relationship?
1: It's your observation is correct, of course, and there is no—it's not an automatic response. Just as sports can cultivate virtues and cultivate vices, depending on how sport is practiced and coached, um, these regular daily walking uh, trips. Can be stressful, instrumental. I mean, you walk in a hostile urban environment, lots of traffic. It's dangerous. You have to be alert. You have uh, you have little time. You need to reach something. The potential of ecologization there is is not very big. It's kind of a risk sport. So, in that sense, it's to a certain extent it's a matter of life and death. So, if it is the case that these risk sport exercises can cultivate ecologization, fine. But, you know, uh, if you want to explore this ecologization potential, the environment means something. Walking in nature, walking on a path in nature or in a beautiful scenery, definitely there is the potential. What about urban environments? So this is what I discuss in the article. I move from an obvious case and take one step towards the less obvious, one step after the other. That's called intellectual walking. (laughs) One step after the other towards the tough cases. So as you say, uh, what about walking in a hostile urban environment? And that is a much tougher case. And then is that is where I turn to uh, the new ideas of the green city, the smart city, and the rebuilding of our cities these days, uh, the green movement, establishing urban environments that are movement friendly and that opens up for this potential there's interesting studies on what they call biomimetic design where you instead of the straight and hard lines of urban architecture introduces the soft and curved lines of nature use materials that are either from nature or mimetic they 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 You know, are inspired by natural forms and shapes and colors. So a movement friendly urban environment can definitely be inviting to interconnections with you. And modern architecture is very concerned about this greening or this biomimetic design. So, uh, more movement friendly urban um, environments can definitely enhance this the ecological potential of urban walking
0: Mm -hmm. and one of the big issues you take up is that all the recommendations are made from this epidemiological perspective 20 minutes per day or 30 minutes per day but so I guess we also need to open up new ways of talking about thinking about imagining what movement can offer us
1: yes uh, we need hard facts. I mean, I'm not arguing against epidemiology. It's it's advanced. It's interesting. It's uh, It gives us the status of things in terms of quantitative measures, and it's an important dimension of policymaking. But it's at the same time reductionist, and most epidemiologists, of course, would agree with us that there are additional perspectives here that can be of value. So in, in policy making, in urban design, uh, you need much more than that. And, and architecture has a clear qualitative dimension and also a, a phenomenological dimension where, uh, where architects are really concerned about the experiential qualities of architectural design. And with a green movement, a biomimetic design. So the interconnection, the the multidisciplinary approach to physical activity in society is the future by by all means. And you see see groups working together now with architects, designers, epidemiologists to construct movement-friendly and movement-inviting environments. Uh, So I think uh, this is a very interesting development. And... Human movement ecology, as I call it, is one part of this uh, new multidisciplinary approach to physical activity. The terminology here is a bit problematic. Physical activity is kind of reductionist in itself as a concept. The physical versus the mental, the calorie burning versus the experience of moving. So talking about human movement, is probably more inclusive as a concept but if physical activity works there out there in policy making and if physical activity also give the association for people and for policymakers to experience it's not the biggest problem and 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 back to the habit um, if you're born and raised in a movement friendly environment Walking to school or to work becomes what you do. It's not a habit you have to struggle to install in your life. It's something you do. And you may even as a child, you you, you would like to be driven by the car to school, but you, you nobody is doing that anymore. You walk. Gradually, this uh, habit is internalized and you start to appreciate it. So it's about socialization. It's the old Aristotelian idea of when you do it again and again, you internalize it and it becomes this habit we have been talking about. Uh, so I also reflect at the end of the paper about the whole policy of physically, of stimulating or encouraging or pressuring people to enhance their physical activity level. All these campaigns, there are no needs, need for these campaigns in a movement friendly society because regular movement is part of the, your lifestyle. And this might be sound utopian. This is a future movement utopia. But it might also be an actual development in the modern, green, smart, movement-friendly, biomimetic architecture uh, city or urban environment.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I just remember I last winter wrote in my blog about why I'm happy that I was forced to ski as a child, (laughs) cross-country skiing, a lot of children now going skiing, and you see young children skiing, and sometimes they just jump in the, you know, on the side and start screaming and refuse to go any further, but the parents still, you know, (laughs) take them again, and, but then now I'm glad I did, because skiing, cross-country skiing is something that I really enjoy and look forward to, and it's, so important for many people in the nordic countries norway finland and so on so i i just remember you did a really nice presentation about these gliding sports and how this sensation is something that is once you learn to master it it's actually something really enjoyable and somehow you know it extends your possible ways of being and interacting with the environment but. As a child, at least I was one of those children who had to be forced to first do it long enough and then learn to find these dimensions in skiing that were actually enjoyable. But the beginning might be different.
1: (laughs) Yes, uh, I definitely see what you mean. I mean, now we're discussing the ethics of parenting. How much force should you use (laughs) in... Providing your children with the experiences, practices you think you think are good for them, and uh, the the principle there would be um, that children have a right to an open future, meaning that you should introduce children to a lot of activities. And your parents did right then. Skiing is an important activity in the countries in which we live, right? So you should try this. You should be introduced. And you want to go home after 10 minutes? No, you have to be introduced in a serious way. At the same time, you should be able to try, to try dance and music and a lot of activities. Then gradually, when you have given it a serious try, then it's up to you, right? Then you have to explore, you have to explore these things and you connect to some of them and you may not connect to others. And then you, those to which you connect, you can explore further and open up new dimensions of your life. <laughs> Whereas, uh, this is wise parenting, isn't it? Whereas unwise parenting would be to, to keep you in skiing. Well, you want to go to music or ballet? No. Skiing, you are supposed to become a good skier. So this is the classic debate. So, but parenting and paternalism can be justified. I make decisions for my child because I... am in, in the best interest of my child to open up the future for my child. Whereas, you know, specializing my child from early age on. So that's a different thing. And then it's the gliding in, in our culture, in your culture, in, in the winter countries, at least this sense of gliding is an interesting phenomenological phenomenon. We may not be biologically adapted to a certain extent on this. When you have guests from abroad, they never walked on a icy pavement before. They, they slip, they fall, they feel really insecure, it's uncomfortable. But when you master the technique, the balance, where you exploit or utilize this gliding possibility in sports, there is a fantastic dimension of freedom there. So the phenomenology of gliding would be, most gliding sports would include, you know, this an effort like in skating there is an effort a strong push followed by a relatively long phase of effortless smooth movement that gives you a sense of, of freedom of uh, joy actually you you uh, you transcend the uh, the heavy gravity of everyday movement and you fly for a moment a brief moment in time This is the fascination with gliding sports. You can see it even small children when they find a slippery, a slippery part of the pavement or at the playing ground, they put on speed and they glide and they laugh and they're full of joy. It's like the skier, the adult, the grown up person, the skater. It's this similar feeling of freedom in gliding sports that is quite fascinating. You explore a new embodiment of the world and an interaction with the environment the ice the snow the water you glide through the water the parachuter if you you glide through air wonderful feelings
0: mm-hmm. yes and i think this like this kind of philosophical analysis and making these dimensions more visible i think it's so important for expanding our thinking around what is the value that these activities can provide to our lives yeah, and,
1: yeah, yeah. So in the physical physical education curriculum, there should be a point saying that all children should be able to experience the joy of gliding. <laughs> <A> very important <laughs> educational goal, because in this experience there is much more. There is an experience of freedom, experience of a deep interaction with the environment, and so on and so forth. Potentials for ecologization, as we talk about. <laughs>
0: Yes, I think one good practical outcome from the discussion, this needs to be added. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Excellent. I've really enjoyed our discussion. I will let you go in a moment. I just, before we started, you mentioned that you have been involved in these discussions of the very topical issue, which is the Beijing Olympics, and there's huge controversy around this and these boycotts that are now Coming up, so maybe if you could say just a few words about what the situation is in Norway and how you have contributed to the debates. Uh,
1: Yes, I can. Um, It's in, in a way it's linked to the justification of sport in society, to the value of sport, to the sustainability of sport, and the sustainability of mega events. So it's connected to some of these other things we have debated, but. On the other hand, it's a very different area of application of these ideas. Uh, And the mega events, as you all know, is now controversial because of the international sport organizations awarding big events to totalitarian states and states accused of serious human rights violations. So how can sports and these organizations with their visions and ideals actually give games mega events to states doing this it's the it's the phenomenon of sports washing so these states want the mega event to portray an idea, ideal image of themselves internationally to enhance their international status and to a certain extent to Take the attention away from human rights violations. So the states have different motives. There are different. China and Qatar would be two very different contexts. But the, the whole problem of sport washing is an ethical problem for sports, and what can we do about it? So I was approached by Norwegian Soccer Federation be, before their policy making on whether to boycott Qatar or not. Now, as it turned out, Norway didn't qualify for Qatar. But before knowing this, the soccer federation wanted to establish a policy. They were under pressure from the outside to establish a policy. Supporters demanded boycott. Supporters these days, especially in soccer, have become activist groups, putting pressure on on the established the establishment on policy making. That's an interesting development in itself. But then I, I looked into the boycott policies and research on the effects of boycotts, international boycotts, not just of sports, but sanctions of various kinds, on, on human rights violations, uh, economic sanctions, diplomatic sanctions. And it turns out that boycott, meaning de- being defined by cutting all dialogue, stopping the dialogue, boycott a sport event, you don't go there. Athletes, everyone stays home. You don't want to be part of it. So boycotts under extreme conditions can be your only option. But in most contexts, boycotts seem, does not seem to work if you want to change the conditions of those being repressed. If you really want to reduce, uh, human rights violations, other diplomatic means, including keeping a certain dialogue open seems seem to work better than boycott where you have a lot of uh, unintentional consequences uh, boycotts tend to strengthen the regime to a certain extent because a population stand up for their their system if they're being harassed in their view from the outside and so on and so on so. The study of of these policies uh, made me realize the significance of keeping a dialogue open as long as you can. And there are other ways of demonstrating, as uh, we have seen national teams now have human rights messages on their shirts. A diplomatic boycott would mean that official representatives do not go to the mega event. We protest. The athletes go and the athletes may go with this signaling with this human rights message on the shirts and so on and so forth this hurts more in a way than just staying away and if you want an efficient boycott it has to be coordinated many nations many teams have to stay away then it may have an effect if your motive to boycott is just to make a stand this we do not accept your policies We stay home. Then it will be successful anyway. But it may not, it may not benefit those who are repressed. And even more so, it may even make repression worse. It, it, as I said, it may have non-intentional effects, consequences. So the whole boycott discussion is quite complex. And I try to explore that based on Mm -hmm. the potential value of sport in enhancing human rights. So it, The philosophy part of this became very important in the discussion of boycott and the value choices involved. Make sense?
0: Makes sense. It's a very complicated issue. And these diplomatic boycotts are now being announced by some countries. They are. Not others in in relation to the Beijing Olympics.
1: Exactly. You know, a recent example of a diplomatic boycott would be Sochi 2014. Russia was heavily criticized for the homophobic laws and regulations. So instead of sending high-level official representatives, Obama sent three openly gay athletes as official U.S. representatives to Sochi, led by the tennis legend Billie Jean King, who is not afraid of delivering a message. So instead of staying home, this act was a clear protest against the repressive homophobic laws installed in Russia at that time and also an act of solidarity to the russian uh, community uh, where actually us athletes go there and with a message and this may be a very smart way of protest not closing the dialogue, but making a very clear stand on your values. So, uh, being creative in these, uh, in these in, occasion, on these occasions, designing protests that still do not completely close a dialogue, based on analysis of what really benefits the groups being repressed and what can really have effect on reducing the human rights violation. That I would say is a better strategy than this clean, blunt boycott, just staying away.
0: Mm-hmm. I think this, yeah, it's such an urgent issue for different countries and also athletes themselves. How do they, do they go? And if they go, how do they use their ability to talk up about this? Yes,
1: and athletes are different here. And I think pushing the responsibility on the athletes is very wrong. Some athletes are politically interested. They know what they're doing. Other athletes, they are 19 years old. They've spent their lives trying to excel in their sport. And then suddenly they have a microphone in their face giving statements about the human rights situation in China. It's, it's unreasonable. This is a leader responsibility and mm-hmm. the leaders have been weak. They have not, you know, explored policies. They have not thought critically around policies. And their own possibilities. So, this is definitely a leader responsibility in sport. And it's it, these are value choices. They have to be based on sound value reasoning. And, you know, applied ethics here is, is a competence that is lacking to a large extent that the sport leadership yeah. competence in applied ethics and value reasoning, value based leadership.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Sigmund. This has been really a thought provoking discussion. A very inspirational one in relation to how we can expand our thinking and imagination around the possibilities of movement and very thought-provoking in terms of how do we think about the sporting mega, mega events and how can we address these serious human rights concerns so thank you very much once again
1: thank you very much for listening to me and and inviting me into the to your podcast i appreciate that.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in this show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests
1: for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.